You're listening to the Burnham Society Podcast. The regular host, Rowan Bristol, is unavailable this week owing to complications from the last episode. So, uh, today the podcast is providing another 51st Ward story inspired by much older tales. Tsuru by Stephen Fluet, read by Brenda E. Kelly. I'm in love. It's such a selfish thing to say. My last breakup wasn't terrible. She'd said what she needed to say, and I'd accepted it. The stuff got divided, and she moved on. I'd never lived on my own before. I'd gone from family to partner to partner, and now there wasn't anywhere to go. I found a studio near the trains, so I could just work and go home, but I'd get agoraphobic just walking into my apartment. There was no one there to make the walls smaller. I was right by the lake in the northernmost part of the city. I'd go out to the lake at night and before the dawn just to exhaust myself back into the world. Homeless colonies camped out under the trees beside the beach. Before the sunrise, everyone was asleep. The sand was a barrier against an absolute darkness broken up by the waves breaking on the edge of the shore. On a spring morning, the only feet on the sand were my own. After some stretching, I'd go from the north end of the beach to the south and back. I had no idea how far or how long. The only markers were my screaming calves and the sun. The winds on the beach aren't broken by the city. They would whip against me and make it cold as hell as I ran. I used to distract myself with music, but the roar of the wind and the crash of the surf was too much for my earbuds, so I'd just listen to nature as I pushed myself. As spring arrived, the sounds changed as the birds returned from their winter homes, and their conversations filled the empty space. I'd gotten so used to their morning calls and conversations that I almost didn't notice a new voice amongst the crowd. Further down on the beach, closer to the waves, there was a shadow on the beach crying out in pain and fear. I sprinted over, assuming it was a wounded bird. The darkness of the sky and water warped the shadow. It was so slender, splayed across the blue-tinted beach, calling out in pain with an impossibly long neck. But as I got closer, the shadow curled up tightly. The noise turned from shrill shrieks to weak sobs. I thought I was running to a bird, but I found instead a woman. She was naked, shaking in the cold, surrounded by a pool of blood staining in the sand. There were open wounds in her arm, and her body was covered in bruises. I tried to get her attention as I took my jacket off to wrap around her wounds. I wasn't gentle enough, and the pain of my touch roused her from her shock. She looked straight into my eyes and screamed. The sound was so high and sharp, I fell back as she tried to beat at me with her wounded arms. Even as battered as she was, she struggled to her feet and tried to run. I went after her, watching her stumble and fall as she raced to the water. Each time she rose, she would stretch out her arms, suddenly bringing them back in pain from the wounds. I caught her just as her feet met the water. I thought she was going to drown herself. <laughs> she struggled against me, but was finally far too weak. I tried to calm her as I lay her down, trying to stop the flow of blood with my coat. It's going to be all right. I said over and over, trying to calm her. You're not going to be hurt anymore. Just stay with me now. I need you to stay with me. 
Shock was taking her. She was getting colder and colder. The shrieking had faded to a whisper. I have to go. The sun's coming up. She kept tilting her head in rapid angles. I was worried she was having a seizure. You're not going anywhere, I said. You've lost a lot of blood and you're beaten up. Who did this? What happened? I... I fell. There was a loud noise and I fell. Instinctively, I looked up, but the nearest buildings were blocks past the park. It was just the strangest thing to say. There wasn't anywhere to fall from. Do you know who did this to you? Do you know how you got here? Her voice got smaller as her shaking began to subside, her body like ice. I fell. I fell so far. I have to go back. I was losing her. She'd closed her eyes and had become eerily quiet. Oh, please stay with me. At least tell me your name. Do you remember your name? She opened her eyes. Zuru, she said weakly. I could barely hear it in the winds. Sue, Sue, is that your name? I nodded carefully, picking her up, wrapping her in my coat. She weighed next to nothing at all. I've got you, Sue. We'll get you to a hospital. She shook her head, calling out again so loud it rang in my bones. Okay, okay. Let's get you home. I live a few blocks from here. It will be all right. It will be all right. Her last protest drained whatever energy she had left. As the sun rose, she flinched against its light. She curled up so tight as if the sun was hurting her. I scrambled to my place, running up the stairs to my studio. I skipped over the futon, the only furnishing in the place, and hurried into the bathroom where I started a bath and gingerly put her in, trying to get her temperature up. Under the bathroom lights, I got a good look at her. I didn't think anyone could be so thin. She was almost translucent, every rib and vein visible across her body, marred by all the bruises. I could count every bone on her body. Her hair was short in downy white tufts on her skull. She roused in the water, clearly frightened, but too weak to get out of the tub. Hey there, I said, trying to ease her with a smile as I knelt beside the tub. She didn't rise, but stared at me with wide, dark eyes as I examined her wound. For someone so frail, her arm was healing rapidly. Apparently the bullet had gone clean through. I cleaned it and bandaged it as best I could with band-aids and towels, the tub's water going crimson as I washed her off, wincing in sympathy at every injury. Each sound she made as I worked cut into my heart. We really need to get you to a hospital. Get the police. She shook her head. I need to get back, she said, her voice a little stronger. Look, Sue, she tilted her head at the oddest angle. What did you call me? She said. Sue, you said your name was Sue on the beach. Her eyes widened and focused right on me. Her body tightened again, like it had in the sunset. Her head straightened, and she looked more normal as she blinked, her eyes seeming to get softer with the sunlight rising in the windows. I'm Sue, 
she said, her voice losing its high-pitched rasp. I nodded. That's right, Sue. I found you on the beach. You'd been shot. What happened? She shook her head, holding her knees in the tub. I was wandering through the marshes. I heard a sound, and everyone went away. I tried to go too, and and I fell. The nearest wetlands are 20 miles north of here, Sue. Someone must have dumped you on the beach. Is there anything more? She started crying. Nothing, I said, could get her to stop. I helped her out of the tub, dried her off, and wrapped her in blankets. I drained the mess from the tub, trying to clean away the memory of her pain. It wasn't long before she was asleep on my mattress. I, I watched her for an hour, trying to figure out what to do. I couldn't process this. I, I took what change I had in a jar and went to get some food. I think I deliberately stayed out longer than I should have. When I returned at noon, I fully expected the door to be open and her long gone. Sue was still in my studio. She dressed in my clothes and looked a lot less pale. The bruises were fading quickly and I couldn't see the veins through her skin. She let me look at her wounds, which had improved even from the morning. It must have bled worse than it actually was. She let me dress it again, her eyes never leaving mine. Thank you, she said, smiling softly. My heart broke a little with that smile. It's nothing, Sue. I tried to return her smile. I couldn't leave you out in the cold. And we really need to find your family and friends. She shook her head. They're long gone. I don't know where to find them. She looked at the dressing on her arm. What can I do in return? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Just heal, get better. You can leave whenever you're ready. Do I have to? <gasps> what could I say? I made some soup and fed her. Soon she drifted back to sleep and I struggled to figure out what to do. I kept wanting to call someone to throw responsibility off on someone else. This wasn't my problem. I had a job, I had bills. But I kept staring at her. As she slept, she gathered the blankets around herself like a nest, curled so tightly. She would twitch and tremble, the high noises coming from whatever dream she had. I would touch her and the cries would stop. I don't remember if I slept that night, but I saw the sunrise and I didn't go out to run. I stayed as long as I could before I knew for certain I'd be late for work. I told her where I was going, not knowing if she heard me and promised I'd be back. Work was a chore, but now it was meaningless. I was in a state of panic trying to figure out what to do, who to call, what trouble she was in, what trouble I might be in. But with every thought, I'd see her wide, dark eyes, her white, soft hair, how she would calm at my touch. To this day, I couldn't tell you what I did for a job then, but I can describe every part of her, every motion, every sound. I braced myself at my apartment door at the end of the day, 
hoping she was gone, praying that she wasn't. I opened the door, and she sat in her little cloth nest, looking so delighted, so pleased to see me, just me. Sue healed quickly. Every day I left for work, and on my return, I saw her smile when I opened the door. I became less guarded, more comfortable. Even before my last breakup, it had been years since I felt happy, and never as much as when I saw Sue's smile. It wasn't long before we were sharing the futon, and my restless nights grew to a distant memory. She was so fragile, her body so thin and frail. I thought I'd break her with a breath. Her skin was so soft, and her arms and legs, the hair was like feeling a baby chick. <laughs> I'd breathe her in and smell the forests and the grasses. When she kissed me, I felt like I could fly. I would taste her, and she would enfold me, her cries sharp and loud and magical. She would lay on me, touching me, holding me, and the world would just fall away. Sue didn't speak much about her past, and even then it was always in mysterious terms. I didn't want to press too hard. She listened to my stories, the tales of my friends and family, my life before the studio. She would just listen, the good, the bad, the things I was proud of, the things I wasn't. I realized I didn't want to let her go. The only difficulty was that my money was already tight just living on my own. Taking care of Sue was only making it worse. I started selling off what extra stuff I had, books, mementos, anything that I felt wasn't essential to survival. I'd even found a buyer for an old belt loom I had from my Renfair days, but that one thing Sue wouldn't let me get rid of. We got into our first fight over an old wooden loom, but she told me that if I kept it, she'd be able to help us out. I told her she didn't have to, that I'd find a way to make it work out, but on this one thing, she was stubborn. I gave Sue the loom and my old yarn, and she put me to bed, this time not joining me. I woke the next morning to the sounds of Sue fussing around the place. On the kitchen table, there were three belt-length strips of cloth feeling like silk, each of them a crimson, so rich and dark, it seemed to take in the light around it. Where did you get these? I asked, running my fingers through the cloth. And Sue gave me that smile. I made them, she said. My mother taught me weaving. Weaving makes a sturdy home, she'd say. It was the first time she'd ever mentioned her family. I tried to figure out how she made them, but when asked, she just said it was a family tradition. <laughs> Sue was so hopeful when she asked if the cloth would help us out. I contacted some artist friends again in the neighborhood who were surprised to find me back in the world, even more that I was with someone. I introduced Sue around and they took to her as I had. A friend promised to sell the cloth at an arts festival and Sue made more for the event. Everyone liked her and liked that I was happy once again. Through it all, I held Sue's hand, keeping her close with me. The cloth sold well and people asked for more. Sue said she was happy to provide, but when I asked her if I could help, she refused, telling me that this was her gift to me, the least she could do. We took the cloth all over the city and the response was great. 
Some noticed a delicate pattern of feathers in the weave. Others couldn't get enough of the airy, downy texture. Some of the buyers asked if we could make more of the cloth, maybe enough for clothes. So I used some of our money to buy a larger loom I'd found at a white elephant shop. I couldn't wait to show it to Sue. But when she saw it, she went pale. She looked at me in horror. I asked her what was wrong, but she shook her head, said that so long as I was happy, she'd make more. She smiled, but the smile wasn't right anymore. The better things got for us financially, the worse our relationship became. She'd always wait until I was asleep or at work to do her craft, leaving only the new cloth on the table. I never once saw a piece of string on the loom. I'd spend evenings talking to buyers, selling the fabric, Sue wove. No matter how much demand increased, Sue would just nod, and the next morning it would be there, without a word or even a smile. After a buyer's request, I asked Sue if she could do any other color than red. She cried for hours. I just let her be. I had two jobs now, and we were finally breaking even. My mornings were my day job and my nights talking to clothiers and galleries, getting our work noticed. In time, just from the fabric alone, we were making more than my day job. I decided to quit to focus on selling her material full time. We could afford a better place and a better life. But at the same time, we never stopped fighting. I couldn't understand why. Why couldn't I help? Especially when we could make even more fabric. But just like her past, she kept her technique a closely guarded secret. It got nasty. She kept going on and on about how this was a gift, and I kept snapping at her for being so secretive. Wasn't she grateful for everything I'd done? <laughs> I'd rescued her, took care of her, and had made her art something special. Why didn't she see that? I had given everything. <sighs> We'd stop speaking. She was always too tired after weaving, looking nearly as pale as when I'd first found her. We began to sleep apart. Every time I touched her, she would shy away as if injured. Our little nest was broken. She took to wearing long sleeve shirts, no matter what the weather, and I began to wonder what she was hiding. What was she doing as I was sleeping? One night I faked going to sleep and waited, listening for the clatter of the loom. Instead, I heard Sue crying. I heard her crying the same sobs I'd heard when I found her on the beach, the very same high-pitched cry that brought me to her rescue. I quietly rose from our bed and crept over to where I saw her shadow. She worked entirely in the dark, and I couldn't make out what she was doing. To my everlasting regret, I turned on the light. On the ground was a pile of down, soft as angel's breath, and bright crimson. I looked up, and she was naked, half of her, the pale woman I knew. The other, a broad-winged white crane. With her human hand, she plucked the feathers from her body and was making thread from the down, 
with the blood from her plucked skin dyeing the feathers. I stared, seeing the bald, wounded patches all over her body, permanently damaged. I was barely able to look at her eyes. She stared at me, so hurt, so shattered. I, I couldn't say a word. She bolted out of our apartment, running toward the lake. I called after her, calling her name and realizing how wrong I'd been in everything, including her name. I remembered her on the beach and heard her voice speak her name in my heart. Suru! I called that name, begging her to return until the pleas were just her name. Over and over and over again. And with every shout of her name, the feathers on her just grew and grew and grew. On the beach, she spread out her healed arms as they unfolded into vast wings and her neck craned far out into the rising sun. Her legs hit the water and they became so thin, so delicate, and the last of her human form dissolved with the water's touch. Suru took flight as I begged in the waves for her to come home. As the sun rose, I lost even the shadow of her on the horizon. It's so hard to sleep. I can't close my eyes without seeing her. Winter came and I found another job. My friends don't talk to me anymore, believing I had driven Sue away as I'd done with others before. I wish I could tell them the truth. I wish I could tell her how sorry I am I want to tell her I love her, and I curse myself, knowing how selfish those words are. Spring has come, and in the twilight, I stretch out my arms. Suru is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. We would love to hear from you and answer your questions. You can reach us through the Burnham Society Facebook page at burnhamsociety.madeoffail.net or by email at rowan.bristol at gmail.com. Farewell. Farewell.